Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, April 1st, 2015. We will be doing our light episode today, and no, that's not an April Fool's joke. That's just really what it is. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to go back, put things in context, and use sound biblical exegesis and hermeneutics to take a look and compare what people are saying to see if it actually squares with what God's Word says. And a part of the discernment task that we uh, harp on here at Fighting for the Faith on a regular basis is the need to actually spend time in-depth studying God's Word. And uh, on Wednesdays, what I try to do is pass the mic off. Well, actually, I pass it off from time to time. And uh, we also play lectures from myself, and we will be doing that today. We're going to continue with our Rose Bros ramblings through Genesis, and we're just about up to the story of Abram. And uh, that's where we'll be picking up today in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible, grab it real quick and have a seat, and we're going to get right to it. Here is the latest installments of Rosebro's Ramblings Through Genesis. Okay, let's pray. Almighty God, the fount of all wisdom, by your Holy Spirit, enlighten those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of your truth, they may worship you and serve you from generation to generation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, now we're getting into the portion of the Old Testament where we're going to have to pay careful attention to what's going on. If you remember, when we started things off, we talked about the scarlet thread that's running through the Old Testament. Because here's the question. Why are we following the stories of this particular group of people? This is where the story is going to pick up a little bit of pace. And what I mean by that is, is you've got to pay attention to who's got the ball. And what I mean by who's got the ball it has to do with the, with the scarlet thread. The reason why we're following the stories of this particular group of people during this history in this part of the earth is due to the fact that the Messiah is the one coming through these people. So kind of highlights, you have Adam, Enoch, Noah. Now who has the ball here after Noah? Where, who has the promise of the Messiah after Noah? Shem. 
Let's put Shem in there. So I'll put a little dot here. So we have Shem, who's next. And then we'll kind of get into this. Does anyone, offhand, I know this is kind of like a Bible trivia question. Anyone remember the name of uh, Abraham's father? Yeah, for five bonus points, you know. Yeah. We do a Jeopardy style. Who is Terah? Okay, that's, that's Abraham's father. So what we're, we're going to go from Adam to Noah to Shem being briefly mentioned, and then we'll get to Terah, and then Abraham, and then Abraham is like the huge watershed you know, in Revelation here because he has this unilateral covenant with God, and we'll talk about that, the difference between a unilateral versus a bilateral covenant. It sounds really complicated, but it's not. And, uh, and so... Keep in mind, as we start to get into this portion of Scripture, that I could drill down pretty deep in all of these texts, but I'll try not to go too far as we drill down. I'm going to try to keep it related to the rule of faith. So, descendants of Noah, chapter 10, Genesis. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephath, Togomar, uh, Togarmah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish. Does that sound familiar? Tarshish? Yeah. yeah. Kittim and Doda, Dodanim. From these, the coastlands people spread to their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Now, I'm not going to read the whole list, but here's the question I have for you. Those who are in the visible church who are liberal in their theological bent, they seem to spend a lot of time trying to basically say the Bible is like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. It's mythological kind of stuff. If this is mythology, why on earth are these genealogies put in here? Yeah, just for good backstory. You know, George Lucas could only wish he could have this kind of details in his mythologies, right? <laughs> yeah. No, the reason, I'll, I'll give you the simple reason as to why these genealogies are in here. Because these people actually lived. It's just kind of that simple. You know, I, the, the simple explanation is the one. And so th- these are the types of details that if you run across somebody, and unfortunately there's a, quite a few of these people visibly within the church, who spend an inordinate amount of time basically causing you to doubt what Scripture says. You know, they, they try to, you know, if you were to think of, you know, Scripture as like this wonderful, you know, weaved carpet or something like that. They like to take the threads and start to pull them out. And, you know, just like this. Don't let that happen to you. Okay? Don't let that happen to you. Mark. I've uh, read that C.S. Lewis addressed that. This quote is saying, I know fiction. I've that my whole life, and this does not read as that, Yeah, that's right. C.S. Lewis, who is arguably one of the greatest Christian apologists of the 20th century, um, he's not without, without problems, but uh, overall he's, he's got some very interesting points. He was, uh, by uh, training and by vocation, a medieval literary guy. Okay, he, you know, so he taught at Oxford, and he was into medieval literature and fiction and things like that. And he makes the point that uh, the, the Old Testament doesn't read like any myth you know, or any piece of fiction. It, this, is, 
this reads like history. And there's a reason why it reads like history, because it is. I know, it's, it's kind of really that simple. Plus, Jesus thought it was history, so I'm just going to go with him. I'm, you know, call me lazy. So, we'll fast forward here. But let's take a look at some of the highlights here. The sons of Ham. Remember, Ham is uh, the one who's gotten himself in trouble. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. See that word Egypt? You want to know where the Egyptians come from? She know mine doesn't see them. What's it say? Mine says, Miseran, Cush, Miseran, Put, and Canaan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mis- Mitzrayim. Well, M-I-Z-R-I-M. Yeah, is Egypt. Oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah, you take a look. I, I just pulled this up in, in here. The Hebrew is Mitzrayim, and that's, that, that's, the, that's the name for Egypt. You'll start to see here as humans are born after the flood, you know, they're going to be spread out by clans right, and family groups. And so here we have some of the names of some of the bigger family groups. So this is where we start to see uh, the names of some of these, uh, uh, you'll notice verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. If you're familiar, Nimrod is kind of one of these guys you may have heard legends about. He was the first man to be a mighty man on the earth. He was mighty, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So we get a little bit of highlights here. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. So, you know, remember our story today? Where, where do the Assyrians come from? Well, the Assyrians are descendants of a guy by the name of Asher. And um, this is a town that, has, that you know, has its origin, you know, with the mighty hunter Nimrod, right? Um, he went to the Assyria, built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalha, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamin, Lahabim, Nath, Tuhim. Yeah, these are fun names. These, this, uh, so, and then we get to Canaan fathered Sidon. His firstborn was Heth. And the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Balatites, and the Uptites. Right. <laughs> That's not what mine says. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, just, I always throw them in there. So this is where we get all the Uptite people from. Right, and so you're starting to you're starting to get some of the flavor where you're going to see some of the recurring names in Scripture. This this is where they first show up, and so you kind of have to get a little bit of the backstory. This is what's going on here. The territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and as far as Lasha. Now we know where Sidon is. Um, we've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. We've heard of Gaza. Even to this day, right? So you start to see, okay, now, we're, now the picture's starting to develop where we're going to see some familiar names that continue on to this day. Right? So, and they each had their own language, so as they went off, yes. they each started their own... And we're going to find out how that came about, too, because coming off the ark, everybody's got one language. Right. And so we're going to read about this a little bit. And so we'll fast forward. Um, well, let's go to Shem because the, this is where the ball is, right? So to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, Eber the brothers of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arparkshad, Lud, Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, Mash, 
Uh-huh, so you, you see what's going on here. Eber were born two sons. One was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Azur. Now, Shem, you've got to pay attention to, though, because, again, through Shem come the Semites, and this would include Abraham. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their language, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So it's the sons of Shem. That's where the ball is. That's where the scarlet thread is, is at. That's where the Messiah is hidden, if you would, you know, yet unborn in the loins of these men. And now we come to this story. How is it that they spread out from there with the different languages? The answer is told in chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now, what, did God told, what had God told the people uh, after the flood to do? Be fruitful, multiply, spread out, and take over the earth. Man was designed to be the carekeepers of the planet. And rather than spread out and do what they were told to do, everybody decided to do the exact opposite. Why is it that sinners will not listen to God? Well, it's because they're sinners, you know. So as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for uh, mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. But that's what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be dispersing over the face of the whole earth. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they uh, propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all of the earth, and they left off building the city. An unfinished building project, if you would. Building a tower. Why? They want to make a name for themselves, right? We're, we don't want it to be dispersed. We're all going to hang out here. We're going to build a tower to the sky, and we're going to say how great we are, right? Now, a little bit of a side note. A little bit of a side note. In our day, we have great cities, and those great cities have great towers, do they not? And we even in our day understand that many of these great towers that we've built, these great buildings, you think of the Empire State Building or the, you know, the former Twin Towers or the Sears Tower, these were all built in some, to, to some degree to, ex, to show the world our greatness. And you'll notice that there are, there are nations today who are building even larger towers. Why? To show how great they are. So this, this idea of building towers that go up into the sky in order to kind of show how wonderful you are continues to this day. And which is one of the reasons I would think that uh, the uh, Muslim terrorists attacked New York City and tried to take down the uh, World Trade Center and succeeded in it because that was a huge punch in the face. Oh, you think you're so my, high and mighty with your twin towers. Well, we'll knock them down. And they did. So this idea of why towers are built and what they symbolically represent continues to this day, right? So you know, if you kind of think about it, you say, man, man why, I, 
it kind of bugs me that the United States is not the place where there's the largest building in the world. <clears throat> right? Verse 10. Okay, so now we... Oh, by the way, real quick. Okay. Um, so here we got the Tower of Babel. The earth is... The languages are confused. And so they're, while they're building this thing, you know, I, I think I heard somebody you know, do something funny with this, basically saying some guy says to him, hey, hand me a hammer. And he doesn't answer. You know, I don't understand what, you know, what you're saying. And so you know, the whole project comes to a grinding halt because nobody can communicate with each other. And so they end up dispersing by groups and people language, in their languages, and they spread out from there over the earth. Now, think about the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, if you would, is a little bit of a foretaste of what's to come with kind of a reverse Tower of Babel. So in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, you have all of these people there to, you know, for the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem from all over the Mediterranean. They are Jews, and they all speak these different languages. And on the day that the church is born, everybody hears the gospel in their own native tongue from these Galileans, right? That's a little bit of a reverse Tower of Babel. And so, you know, where, where God scattered, now through the gospel, he's drawing in and uniting us all into one again. So think about the themes that kind of play in there. I just wanted to touch on that. Okay, Shem's descendants. These are generation of, the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad. Two years after the flood, Shem lived... After he fathered Aparkshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. By the way, this is one of the reasons why when you read in Genesis 6 that God says, you know, that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll cut man's sh- life short to 120 years. It's not talking about the average lifespan of a human being or the, the far extent of how long a human being will live. Because after the flood, how long did Shem live? 500 more years. But you'll notice as we go from this point forward, each generation, the people die younger and younger. So, you know, Shem lives for 500 years after the flood. By the time we get to Israel or Jacob, he's not living 500 years. So, and he even notes that. We'll, get, we'll show that when we get to that in Genesis. When Arpachshad had lived uh, 35 years, he fathered Shelah. Arpachshad lived after he fathered Selah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years. And he had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years. And he had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ruah. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ruah 209 years. This guy's a short, you know, that's a short lifespan compared to the people who preceded him. He had other sons and daughters. When Ruah lived 32 years, he fathered Surug. Ruah lived after he fathered Surug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Surug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Surug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Nahor lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. And now we're starting to get into familiar territory. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is a really nice neighborhood back then, by the way. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. 
Now, Sarai was barren, and she had no child, which is a very shameful thing for women back in those days. Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. You'll notice here that Terah starts the journey into Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. Terah died in Haran. So they had started off. They went from Ur of the Chaldeans, started off towards Cana, got to Haran and said, yeah, this is good enough, we'll be here. Right? But there's no word here, at least in this text, that says that Terah was doing this because God had told him to do so. Does that make sense? So now we get, now we get to Abram. And Abram is an extremely important person in Scripture, if you don't understand what's going on in Abram, you're not going to get the gospel. It's that important. So, next big person that's mentioned, or at least where that gets kind of a little bit more detail, is Terah. And then we begin with Abram. Notice I did not write Abraham. He did, yeah, that, that, that name comes a little bit later. So, here, these are kind of our big names so far. And so this Shem, this is where we get the name Semitic from Shemites. Okay? So when we talk about somebody being anti-Semitic, they're anti-Shemitic. And so the people descended from Shem, they are considered Semites. Got it? So Abram is a Shemite. Now let's come back to our text. Now the Lord said to Abram. Now, let me remind you again, when you see L-O-R-D, all capitals in your Bible, that is referring to the divine name of God. Um, And it's, let me, I'll quickly open this up so you can see it. You'll notice the divine name is Yahweh, and it goes this way, yad Hey, wow Hey, Yahweh. So whenever you see Lord, L-O-R-D, that's referring to God's name. So you can, when you see that, you can say, Now Yahweh said to Abram. That's another way you can read it. So you, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in, all, in, in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a huge passage. First, let's go back and look, look at the verbs. The Lord says, Yahweh, directly. So we get direct revelation from God again. Haven't really seen this since the flood. This is the first time in Scripture since the flood that God's speaking. So God is personal and He speaks. And He has chosen Abram. And He says to him, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you, and I will make of you. Who's going to do the making? The Lord is. I will make of you a great nation. I, well, hang on a second. I will bless you. And I will make your name great. Who's doing, the, who's doing the, the verbs here? God is. So that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is referring specifically to Jesus. How are all of the people of the earth, or all the nations of the, of the earth, or families of the earth blessed through Abram? Through his seed, the promised Messiah. So that's this. Now we've got another huge thing. Genesis 3, we know that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. We know that. That's the first gospel. Now we get a huge thing that he's going to be a descendant of Abram and that all of the families of the earth will be blessed through this seed. Singular. So here we've got this big promise. Who's making the promise? What did Abram have to do in order to earn this promise? Nothing. Nothing. That wasn't the necessary component. God called him and then sent him. But in this, God's doing all the work. It doesn't say, if you leave, then I'll do this. He's just saying, go, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. Big deal. In what sense? Uh huh. That's a great observation. So notice the people at the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make their, their own names great, and God punished them by mixing up their languages. Here, Abram, we don't know much about him. We just know what neighborhood he's from. His father's from the neighborhood of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is a nice neighborhood. He grows up in Haran. Okay, neighborhood. And God calls him. Now, there is a cross-reference to this, and I didn't look it up before, that says very clearly that Terah and Abram, prior to God's calling, were idolaters. So God calls Abram out of idolatry, believe it or not. Now, coming back to our sermon today, and let me flesh this out. In the sermon today, I made the point that you are not saved by your good works. And if you think you are, you are falling into the same sin as the Pharisees. Self-righteousness. Now, this is the important thing. You've got to get this. No, the Scripture nowhere teaches you are made righteous by your own works. The good works that are commanded by God in Scripture always presuppose that somebody has faith in God. Always. And the Pharisees, the reason why that was such a terrible religion and such a pernicious sin and why Jesus shows up and tells them to repent is because they'd flipped everything on its head and were denying what the written word of God teaches. And this is why the Apostle Paul is such an important figure for us in the New Testament because the Apostle Paul corrects the Judaizers who were also Pharisees who had come into Christianity and corrects their error. And he does so in a definitive way in the book of Galatians. In fact, we're going to actually spend the rest of today in Galatians because we have to lay foundation. And remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. And the New Testament interprets the Old. If you don't have the interpretive keys of the New Testament in your hands, you're never going to get what's going on in the Old. So as we strike off into the story of Abraham, we're going to let God's Word in the New Testament tell us how to interpret what we're going to read in the Old. Does that make sense?
Okay, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings through Genesis. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off... In Rex Quando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. We're going to 
take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. Warning, if you don't understand the covenant that was made with Abraham and you think it's a covenant of works, oh, you're going to mess up your theology big time. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344. Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of today's Rose Bros ramblings through Genesis. Here we go. Flipping your Bibles over to Galatians chapter 1 and get ready for a ride. Remember how sharp Jesus was with those woes kind of thing? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs and all that kind of stuff. This is kind of written in that style. So you'll notice that, and this is kind of an important thing. Several places in Scripture, those who think they are self-righteous or earn their salvation by their good works, that Scripture does not speak timidly to them. It speaks very bluntly, very matter-of-factly. So here's, let me give you the story. Paul, who was a great missionary and an apostle to the Gentiles, he had, in some of his journeys, had traveled to the region of Galatia and he planted some churches. And after Paul left to go plant more churches, in come the Judaizers. And the Judaizers say, that apostle Paul, yeah, you know, you can't trust him because you know what he was before he became a Christian, right? He killed Christians. In fact, he's responsible for Stephen to be martyred. So, And by the way, how many years did Paul spend with Jesus while Jesus was on earth doing his earthly ministry? Zero. So you think that Apostle Paul's really an apostle? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. No, he's not. 
And he forgot to tell you something really important. All you Gentile Christians here in church, you need to come see us after church. We're going to have a little meeting, and there's this little procedure that we have to do on you. And snip, snip. It's going to be a little bit, you're going to be a little bit sore for about a week. And remember, they don't have antibiotics and things like that. You know, but don't worry, the swelling will go down and things will turn to normal in no time. All right? Oh, and by the way, you're not saved unless you do this. Paul, in writing this epistle, hits this straight on. And he spends quite a bit of time talking about Abraham. This is important work. Next week, we'll look at Romans 4 as well. But you've got to understand how the covenants work. The covenant that God makes with Abraham is pivotal in understanding the Scripture. If you get this wrong, you're going to end up in the same ditch as the Pharisees. So Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, whoops, right off the bat, he comes out swinging. I'm an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So he immediately throws his credentials down. I'm an apostle, not by a man, but by Jesus himself. Get over it. And all the brothers who are with me. Notice that it's not this grace, mercy, and peace kind of stuff, right, to begin with. First thing out of his mouth is this. So then he says, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Notice he's referencing the gospel. To deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Pleasant trees dispensed. Time for the action. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned. The word is there is anathema. You know, burn in hell. And by the way, this is the days before they had bold and italic and underline. So in order to make a point, you'd repeat it. As I've said before, so I say it again. If anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned. So much for precious moments, Paul, right? Those are strong words. Now, what does this mean? There is no other gospel. None. There's only one gospel. Which begs the question, and this is a passage of Scripture. You've got to get this into your head and be able to go to it at a moment's notice. Where does Scripture clearly, unambiguously, and succinctly define what Paul's gospel was? Because there is no other gospel. Where would you go? Okay, write this down, memorize it, remember the location, don't ever forget it. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let me take you there. 1 Corinthians 15, and watch the language. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Ta-da! There it is, right? See? He says right there, hey, you want to know the gospel I preached to you? Let me remind you of it. This is it right here. Which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it comes. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Stop there for a second. Huge sentence, and it works with Galatians. I delivered as of first importance what I received. Where did Paul get his gospel from? Jesus. It's a who, not a what. He, or where. He got it from a who. He got his gospel from Jesus. And this, you will notice, literally embedded in this text, is the very first Christian creed. For what I, I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the Gospel in a nutshell. That's the Gospel that, that Paul preached. Christ crucified for our sins, buried, dead, raised again on the third day. That's it. That's the Gospel. So if Jesus is crucified for our sins... That means we're made righteous not by our works, but by what he's done for us. Does it not? The implications are profound and deep. So there's where you go. If you're looking for the gospel that Paul preached, it's clearly spelled out for you in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. So back to Galatians chapter 1. So if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, which is the one that Paul received, let him be accursed or damned. Now watch what he's saying. For am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Yeah, by the way, if you want to really be a people pleaser, serving Christ and preaching the gospel is just not the way to go. Just, I'm just saying. I'm, I would say an amen to this. I've experienced it. And now he continues. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Well, whose gospel is it? For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself gave Paul the gospel he preached. There is no other gospel, and the gospel he preached, which is spelled out for us in 1 Corinthians, comes directly from Jesus. So if you ever hear somebody out there saying, well, I'm not really sure what the gospel is, or how do you define it? You say, well, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, and we can cross-reference it with this verse. You want to know where it came from? It came directly from Jesus himself to the Apostle Paul, who received it and then passed it on so that other Christians received it. And even you've received this same gospel, because are we not reading the words of the Apostle Paul here? Right? So, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among the my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. 
Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So, what happens after Paul is knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus? He disappears for like three years. And then he comes back to Jerusalem, and then he talks to the apostles. And doesn't, you know, he, he knows he's an apostle because he's sent. That's what apostle means, a sent one. Christ has set him apart and sent him to the Gentiles, which is fantastic if you really think about the implications here. Here you've got a Pharisee of the Pharisees being sent as Christ's emissary to the Gentiles. That's going to tweak your theology big time. So he's preaching Christ, and they glorified God because of him. Now, you'll notice what Paul here is doing. He's still rebuilding his torn-down credentials as an apostle, which is necessary for him because that's how the Judaizers worked. They questioned his authority and his apostleship. So he continues. So then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And why would that be? Because it's not necessary for a Christian to be circumcised in order to be saved. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now notice Here, this then sets the stage for how we as Christians, we got to think this way. When you come across a legalist, somebody who believes that they are saved in part by their, their righteousness, their good works, their obedience, what they're often doing is setting up a secondary set of laws that you can somehow keep, and then those become the standard as to whether or not you're a Christian. In the case of the Judaizers, though, they're going back to the Mosaic Covenant, which is fulfilled and done away with, in order to put people into slavery under the law again. And you'll notice that's how he's talking, slavery to the law, slavery under the law. They spied our freedom, but they want to put us back in bondage. The person who is a legalist wants to put you in bondage. And notice what he says. We did not yield to them in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, let me give you an example from the Reformation. Little known fact that at the time of the Reformation, Luther liked the idea that when people were baptized, that they would be fully immersed. He liked the immersion thing. He thought it better represented what's going on in baptism. And he was, he, so early on, he was not... He, you know, he had expressed this, this liking of immersion. And then what happened is, is that a group of people came along and they said, your baptism doesn't count unless you're fully immersed. And so you know what Luther said? We've got to sprinkle. We must sprinkle in order to not submit to this yoke of slavery that these other people are saying because they had created a secondary law now. You're not a Christian. You're not even saved. You're not even baptized unless you're dunked. Well, Scripture doesn't prescribe an amount of water, does it? So, the idea here is when somebody sets up a human law 
and is trying to bind Christian consciences with this other thing, the Christian thing to do is not yield in submission to that man-made law. For why? For why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Now, Luther, he wasn't saying that submersion isn't valid. No. Let's be defiant against... Exactly. That's right. He's not saying that submersion isn't valid. In fact, Luther would basically say, listen, it doesn't matter if you pour, sprinkle, or dunk. The, the thing that makes it a baptism is it's water and the Word, and it's the Word and God doing the work. But when somebody says, uh-uh, you have to dunk, that, okay, and they're saying you have to, then you, as a Christian, actually ha- cannot submit to that. And you say, nope, because you are saying we have to dunk, we will only sprinkle. So the idea then is you don't, you don't submit to somebody who's created a rule and saying you're not a Christian unless you do this or that or the other thing. And when that, when that shows up, you have to, in defiance, for the sake of the gospel, don't submit to it. And so it's, he says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to the gospel he preached. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. In other words, he lays his gospel out before them and they say, Welcome, brother. You got it. We're preaching the same thing. Was Paul's gospel different than Peter's? Nope. It's the exact same. So only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Over and again, you'll see this. You'll see this in Acts 15, this constant theme. Show mercy to the poor. Christ himself spent quite a bit of time seeking out those whom society had kicked to the curb. The poor, the destitute, the widows, the needy, those who with, with diseases that put them out of the church. So keep that in mind. But, now this is the fun part. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, so Peter travels to Antioch. It says, I opposed him to his face. Oh, so politically incorrect. Because he stood condemned. For certain men, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. In other words, he'd wake up in the morning and they'd say, would you like some bacon? And Peter says, sure, I love bacon. And so he's eating bacon. So he has bacon on his breast. And then some of the disciples come from James. And what happens? But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So he's acting hypocritically. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the gospel, the truth of the gospel, so even their actions, their actions here are contrary to the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. Notice this wasn't private, this was public. So here they are, they're all in the room together, and Paul just kind of throws it out on the table. Hey, Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And you can just hear the, the, the air being sucked out of the room. Awkward. <laughs> right? 
But Paul continues, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice the reemphasis on the gospel. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now notice what he said there. If righteousness... If you are declared righteous by your keeping of the law, then what was Jesus doing on the cross? Dying in vain. Dying in vain. In other words, you are no one is declared righteous before God by keeping the law. Not one single human being. If that were the case, then Jesus is dying for no reason whatsoever. So, here's the fun, more fun part. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Notice he keeps coming back. Crucified, died for our sins. Crucified, you know, the cross is everything. That's why his gospel says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That sentence in the gospel he preached in 1 Corinthians that's laid out for us, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, is the sentence of all scripture that everything else gets judged by so an implication of that is that if righteousness were through the law then christ dying for our sins was has no purpose no meaning it's in vain everything hinges on that christ died for our sins so who's bewitched you it was before your eyes that jesus christ was publicly portrayed as crucified so let me ask you this did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith by hearing with faith. How many of you have ever heard really bad Pentecostal preaching? I have. Bad Pentecostal preaching goes something like this. God wants to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, but there may be some sin in your life. And maybe you haven't completely opened up all the different compartments of your life up to the Holy Spirit in His work. And so, you know, God wants to give you the gift of speaking in tongues, and maybe He wants to heal you of illness and disease, but He can't because you have been fornal caboodling. You got sin in your life. So you've got to you got to clean up your act. You got to get in there and yield to the spirit and then he can finally work in you. Is that giving you the spirit by works or by faith? That's pure works. Now it's kind of scary that I do it with that accent, but yeah. We continue. So he so he asked the question. He asked the question, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abram, Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. So here now Abraham makes the first appearance in the book of Galatians. And you'll notice this all then gives us the right way to interpret Abraham 
in light of the cross. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited or counted, counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 is where that's from. So you'll notice this word, counted. I'll show you this. This word is an accounting term. Okay? It was counted, logizamai, to be credited. So this is an accounting term. If I said, hey, listen, you know, I got a letter from the bank, and the bank just said that there was an error in, you know, a bank error that they had, they had done, and they've credited my account, you know, 500 bucks. We'd sit there and go, yeah, right? That's, that's a big deal. So who's doing the crediting? The bank is. So notice it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Who was crediting him? God. That's the point. So know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, that means to be declared righteous, justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. We just read that, right? In you, all the nations will be blessed. What does Paul say, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? That, that is, that's the gospel being preached. So what we just read in Genesis chapter 12 is the gospel. It's in its Old Testament form. It's a little bit fuzzy and a little bit unclear. But Paul here, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it very clear that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now we're going to have to pause there. We'll pick this up next week. But in order to understand the story of Abraham, you have to read him through Galatians and through Romans. When you do that, you go back into it, all of a sudden the whole thing makes sense. So what we just read in Genesis 12... We know from Paul in this book is the preaching of the gospel. This blessing of all nations and all families through Abraham, that's gospel. And it's all by faith, not by works. All right, we'll see you next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>